0: let's pray. Dearest Heavenly Father, we come to your word today humbly. Your ways are not our ways. Help us understand this text. Help us to see Jesus. As we study, purify our hearts and make us wholly yours. Give us ears to hear your promises and eyes to see your goodness. Reveal our sin and mend our broken hearts. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. What law do you have a hard time obeying? Well, a New Zealander by the name of Ivan Sedgidin just couldn't stomach wearing a seatbelt. So stubborn was he in his defiance that over the course of five years, he was issued not ten, not twenty, but thirty-two tickets for driving without a seatbelt. The fine for the tickets was a small fortune. Even so, Ivan refused to buckle up. In this battle between Ivan and the traffic police of New Zealand, Ivan was determined that he would triumph. He would never submit. This is a vivid picture of the desire in each of our hearts to do what we want to do. But in our passage today, we'll see how Israel learns the necessity of submission. And likewise, we need to know the sweet taste of defeat. We will look at our text in three divisions. The necessity of defeat, the revelation of defeat, and the joy of defeat. Our text begins in chapter 6 with an account of how God gives Joshua victory over Jericho. But before there's victory, God begins with the necessity of defeat. Remember back to the last verses of chapter 5. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No. But I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped. This encounter with the Lord of hosts set the stage for all that is to come in the next three chapters. When Jesus responds no to the question as to which side he was on, he's making it clear that he is in charge. It's so easy to blaze forward with some good goal before us and claim God's aid. But Joshua fell face down before his Lord, and we need to be careful to do the same. God gets to give the orders, and we follow his leading, not the other way around. You see, in this battle of will, Joshua's ego was defeated. But he will come to know that this defeat is sweet indeed. Chapter 6 then transitions into an overview of the situation. Jericho was completely shut up. And in this daunting scene, God tells Joshua how to view things from a spiritual perspective. Verse 2. See, I have given Jericho into your hand. Note the past tense. The word of the Almighty God is certain, so certain that it is as good as done. Here, too, Joshua must submit what his eyes tell him is true to what God is telling him is true. He needs to know the sweet taste of defeat in relation to his perception of reality. Then the commander of the Lord's army tells Joshua how to go about taking the city. And as hymn writer William Cowper so aptly put it, God moves in mysterious way, his wonders to perform. Indeed, his instructions are mysterious. Silently marching around a city day after day, armed with only trumpets. This is unlike any strategy of man. It's hard to submit, even in the best of circumstances, when we can see the logic behind a law or the goodness of an instruction. Even yet, we were born daughters of Adam, with hearts rebellious to any Lord aside from the Lord of self. So then imagine the battle in the hearts of God's people as they had to decide to get up each morning of that week, choosing to obey a command that they not only did not understand, but which the world around them must have mocked. We know something of this as well. To be a faithful Christian in 2022 means we say things are wrong that the world holds up in praise. We do things the world can't fathom, like spending our Sundays worshiping instead of sleeping in. Pastor Rhett Dodson puts it this way, Because the Lord's mind is infinite and he understands all things comprehensively, His words and actions can seem very mysterious to us. We cannot comprehend his far-reaching plan in a single thought the way he can. We're limited to knowing bits and pieces. So to follow the Lord, we are thrown back on his wisdom. This is the essential element of walking by faith and not by sight. The battle for Jericho began in the hearts of God's people. God commanded seven days of faithful obedience— culminating with seven circuits around the great city of Jericho on the seventh day. Seven is the number of completeness. Complete submission was and is required by the Lord of hosts. They were to walk in silence without questioning, in silence without grumbling, in silence without responding to the taunts of their adversaries, and this from the notoriously vocal and grumbly Israelites until at last the trumpet blast, when they would lift their voices to, as verse 5 says, shout with a great shout. This kind of obedience certainly required the defeat of their pride and will. Verses 8 through 16 record that Israel did surrender their will to that of God's as they followed these initial instructions from God. In obedience, they took Jericho God's way, or should I say, God gave Jericho to his obedient children. Because God surely chose this antithetical battle plan to make clear to all that the battle was won by him alone, he loves to do this kind of thing. Giving Sarah a child when she was 90 years old, parting the Jordan at flood season, raising Lazarus when he was not only dead but decaying. We need to remember this when we are in situations that seem impossible especially when we are asked to obey in situations that seem impossible. How God is glorified when we do so. How gloriously God reveals himself in those very situations. According to verse 8, Israel did just as Joshua had commanded. Furthermore, verse 12 records that Joshua rose early in the morning each of the seven days. I remind my children that obedience isn't just doing what I tell them, but doing it right away, just as Joshua is doing here. This is an indication of the sincerity of his submission. It isn't just outward obedience, but an internal desire. Likewise, the physical reality of the plan God gave to the people was a reflection of the spiritual truth of obedience. In essence, the whole military strategy was to have all the people follow the Ark of the Covenant around the city. In other words, God's people were to follow God. They did not know what they were doing or why, but they followed Jehovah Nisi's lead. And as they sought after his presence and obeyed his instructions, they came to know the sweetness of God giving them the city. But first, we hear the remainder of the instructions in verses 17 through 19. The narrative is very carefully crafted to highlight these instructions regarding the plunder before we get to hear the climactic conclusion of the battle. God clearly tells his people in verse 17 that all the plunder is devoted to the Lord for destruction. This is called a ban and was a concept that would have been familiar to the Israelites. The basis of the concept is that whatever was under the ban was devoted to God and as such irrevocably to be for God's use or destroyed. Leviticus twenty-seven, twenty-eight through 29 explains, But no devoted thing shall be sold or redeemed. Every devoted thing is most holy to the Lord. No one devoted who is to be devoted for destruction from mankind shall be ransomed. He shall surely be put to death. In our passage, God won the battle at Jericho, and the spoils go to the victor. When you own something, you get to decide how you will use it. God determined that the spoils of Jericho, aside from some metal objects that would be dedicated to the tabernacle, would be destroyed. Romans 9.21 Has a potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Furthermore, God is acting justly. Job 34 verses 10-11 through 11 tells us, Far be it from God that he should do wickedness, and from the Almighty that he should do wrong. For according to the work of a man he will repay him, and according to his ways he will make it befall him. In fact, God had patiently waited for the people of the land of Canaan to repent, as he told Abraham, Your descendants shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Indeed, the Lord is patient not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But there is an end to the the delay of judgment. For generations they had continued in their sin. Moreover, knowledge of the true God had reached Jericho, as evidenced in Rahab's conversion, but the rest of the city rejected it. What occurred at Jericho is a picture of what the final judgment will be like. Destruction. Just in... Uncompromising judgment will be executed, but in the midst of it will be glorious mercy to those who have submitted their allegiance to God. I love that the beautiful story of Rahab's salvation is brought up again here in chapter 6. The physical reality of her escape from destruction is a picture for us of our escape from the just judgment of the holy God by hiding ourselves in Christ. And on that final day, again a trumpet will. Will sound, and a cry will go up, but more than a city will fall revelation eleven fifteen then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, "The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign for ever and ever. We need to know the sweet taste of defeat now because the day of judgment is coming. In our narrative, justice and mercy lead into curses and blessings. In verses 26, Joshua laid an oath on them at that time, saying, Cursed before the Lord be the man who raises up and rebuilds the city Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn shall he lay its foundation. In 1 Kings 15.34, we learn that God kept his curse. As Hiel of Bethel rebuilt Jericho, he laid its foundation at the cost of Abiram, his firstborn. Rebellion against God is costly. Thankfully, the curse of our rebellion has fallen not on our firstborn, but God's firstborn, Jesus. Why was it so important that the city should not be rebuilt? It was a sermon in stone, like the twelve stones set up to remind future generations that God had led his people across the Jordan on dry ground. But what was this marker to show? That a holy God, although patient with sinners, will bring judgment against sin, that God won the battle at Jericho and would give his people victory against their foes in the future. Where there is curse upon those who disobey, our text likewise shows the blessing that accompanies obedience. Verse 27, so the Lord was with Joshua and his fame was in all the land. Joshua had obeyed and knew the joy of God's favor, Having the walls of our ego fall to the ground before our Lord is likewise where we will know his blessing. As Pastor David Strain puts it, will you join Joshua on holy ground, bowed in adoration before the Lord, surrendered, submitted to him? Or are you actually here today because you think a little bit of religion gives you some leverage with God? Is the best way for you to co-opt him to your agenda to make sure Jesus is on your team? know he is an ally as you execute your life plan? Look, if that's you, I want you to hear me say very clearly, Jesus Christ will not be used. There is a battle we must lose. It's a battle with our own egos. At the end of the day, the battle to bend the knee to King Jesus is the battle we must lose. We need to know the sweet taste of defeat. Our first truth is, when our wills submit to God, we experience the sweet blessing of his presence. Are you following God or are you expecting him to follow you? How can you make more time for prayer and reading of God's Word in order to know his leading? What area of obedience do you struggle to submit to God? The Word of God is his revealed will. If you are ever wondering what God wants you to do, pick up your Bible Better yet, is to study it and know ahead of time. God also leads us through prayer. This access to God is a wonderful gift that we have as a priesthood of believers. Now, back to our seatbelt defiant New Zealander Ivan. Well, finally he made for himself a fake seatbelt. His deception solved his ticket problem, but his guile ultimately came to light when having no restraint, he was killed in a head-on collision. By the time Ivan's secret law-breaking was revealed, it was too late. This tra- tragedy could have been averted if only someone could have opened his eyes to the danger he was putting himself in. Our second division is the revelation of defeat, and as we look at chapter seven, we will see how God graciously opens the eyes of His people to their sin through defeat at A and subsequently purifies them, drawing them back into fellowship. After the great capture of Jericho, the first verse, nay the first word of chapter 7, catches us off guard. But, But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things, for Achan took some of the devoted things. Sin had entered the camp. The Westminster Shorter Catechism defines sin as, any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. God had been clear about what was to happen with the spoils of Jericho, and yet Achan had decided to disregard God's directive. God held the nation to account. This is hard to understand. But throughout the Old Testament, God insists that his people be separate from the nations around them in order to keep them holy. Practically, intermarrying would bring devotion to pagan gods into the midst of this people who were specially set apart for God. Likewise, in the New Testament, we're warned, A little leaven leavens the whole lump. One man's sin can take the whole nation down. And this is why God can say, The people sinned when Achan took some of the cursed things. Verse 1 concludes, and the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. Just as Jericho was consumed with the fire of God's judgment, now that that inferno is directed at Israel. But unaware, they keep going about their business. In verses 2-3, through reconnaissance is sent out to Ai, the next city they plan to capture, and a favorable report indicates few men will be needed to take Ai. So, based on these men's instructions, only a small part of the army went up to A confident that they would take the city. To their great surprise, verses 4 and 5 tell us that they could not take A. In fact, they fled before the men of A, and the men of A killed about 36 of their men and chased them before the gate as far as Shebarim and struck them at the descent. And the hearts of the people melted and became as water. Wait! Wasn't it the people of Canaan whose hearts were supposed to melt in fear of God? But no. Their confidence had been in God. Had he failed them? Doubts snuck in like cockroaches after a rain. But when doubts come in in faith, we need to turn to God, even if it is with arms full of questions. One of my former pastors assured me that God's chest is big enough and strong enough For us to pound away at it with our fists. He can take our questions. We don't have to get our theology all sorted out before we come to God. And this is just what we see happen with Joshua, verses 7 through 9. And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all, to give us into the hands of the Amorites, to destroy us? Would that we had been content to dwell beyond the Jordan." "'O Lord, what can I say when Israel has turned their backs before their enemies? "'For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it, "'and will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. "'And what will you do for your great name?' "'But of course this wasn't the case. "'God had not brought them over the Jordan just to deliver them into the hands of their enemies. "'Far from it. "'He had brought them over the Jordan to make them his people.' and he cared more about their purity than he did their perfect military record. The fact that our loving God will allow deeply painful consequences of sin to cut us to the quick indicates just how important our holiness is. The Lord said to Joshua, Get up! Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. God mercifully brings their sin to light. Even their defeat which alerted them to the fact that something was wrong, was a mercy. Imagine how horrible it would be if we were like spiritual lepers who couldn't feel the cuts and burns of our sin. we just keep on, unaware of the damage we were doing to ourselves. To switch metaphors, the Bible is clear that that God's discipline in our lives is evidence of his fatherly love. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. And as much as these disciplines hurt, they are to alert us to the greater danger. As God warns in verse 12, I will be with you no more. This is spiritual death. This is the wages of sin. Another proof of God's love and mercy in this passage is how he lays out instructions for purification. There's a means for his holy wrath to be quenched. You see, God's discipline is always with the aim of reconciliation. Verse 16 tells us that without delay, the people followed the Lord's instructions to uncover the sin. By by lot, Achan was called out. The sin he had so carefully covered was seen by God, and God brought it to light. Only when Achan has nowhere to hide does he repent. This is not true repentance. This is just fear of punishment, not real sorrow over his affront against God. What follows is the heartbreaking account of how Achan and all that belonged to him, including his family, were taken outside the camp to be stoned and burned with fire. Yet another sermon in stone was erected as a testimony for future generations of the consequences of sin before a holy God. The very place this judgment was carried out was named after the trouble that led there and the trouble that God consequently brought on Achan. But this is not the last time the Valley of Achor or Trouble is mentioned in the Bible. I will give my people vineyards from there and the Valley of Achor for a door of hope and she will respond there as in the days of her youth, and as in the day when she came up out of the land of Egypt. Hosea 2.15 is a prophecy of God's displaced people once again returning to the promised land, but it will be a land redeemed. Instead of judgment, there is hope. Perhaps there is a sin hidden away, but weighing on your heart, and you are wondering what to do with it. If you confess it, not out of fear of the consequences, but out of sorrow over wronging God, at the cross you will find a Savior with open arms of forgiveness. He is your door of hope. This leads us to our second truth. God lets us feel the consequences of our sin to draw us to repentance and back to fellowship with himself. Can you see the goodness in God's discipline in your life? How do you see him pursuing you? How do you see his prizing of your purification? It's my prayer that when we feel the sting of God's discipline, rather than hiding from him, we would see his longing for reconciliation, and it would soften our hearts. Dealing with sin is hard and painful, but as we learn in First Peter, our sins or passions of the flesh wage war against our souls, and God is trying to save us from the self-destructive behavior. If only Ivan, the seatbelt scoffled, had such a friend. Why did Ivan harbor such a distaste for seatbelts? Maybe there was something in his past, some traumatic experience with a seatbelt that he just couldn't shake. If so, what a tragedy that something dark in one's past could also destroy one's future. Israel must have also been struggling with what to do with their past. God's wrath had been appeased with Achan's death, but there must have been some lingering unease in the hearts of all those remaining. Let's take a look at how God deals with Israel's former failings. Our third division is the joy of defeat. In this division, we will see how Israel again submits and follows God's instructions, and they're able to take a with yet another God-styled victory, and then rightly respond in worship. The highlight of this chapter is how God uses Israel's sin-stained past as part of his glorious battle plan. And this shows us that through God's redemption, he can make even our past defeat by sin sweet again. Chapter 8 begins with God's instructions about how to take Ai. But these are instructions for something more than a battle. God is directing his covenant people in a religious event. As they worship through obedience, God's power will pervade their whole experience. This is true for us as well. Obedience is required if we would experience the joy and power of God's dwelling in us. Remember, this is how we know the sweet taste of defeat. There are a couple things to note about these plans. They differed from that of taking Jericho, and at this time, Israel would would get to keep some of the spoil. If only Achan would have waited. If only Achan would have trusted God. And aren't we all too often just like Achan? We can't wait for the things we desire, so we take them for ourselves. Or perhaps we just give up in praying for them. But if we would wait for God to answer our prayer, he has something even better for us. We need to be patient in waiting on God. We need to trust his goodness to us. We need... To wait is not easy, but the defeat of our demand for immediate fulfillment will in the end taste so sweet. Secondly, in the first attempt to take AI, they followed the advice of men. What a contrast that this time they did everything according to the word of the Lord. No matter how wise the plans of men, compared to our all-seeing God, we are as blind men. In Proverbs 3, 5-6, through 6, we're instructed to trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. This requires a humility of spirit that recognizes that we need God's wisdom. In this surrender, in this defeat, comes the sweetness of rest. We don't have to have it all figured out, but we do have access to one who does. Another striking aspect of the battle plan is Joshua stretching out his spear to alert the troops in hiding that it is time to advance on the now empty city. Does this sound familiar? This is the stance of Moses performing signs with his staff before Pharaoh, and again when the waters of the Red Sea stood at bay before Moses' raised staff. Then there's Moses holding out his staff through the entire battle with Amalek, It's the posture of God who declared, I am the Lord and I will bring you up out from under the burdens of the Egyptians and I will deliver you from slavery to them and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. And ultimately, this is our Savior with arms spread on the cross. He is Jehovah Nissi, the God who goes before us and gives us the victory. But ultimately, the battle of Ae shows us that God's work cannot be thwarted by sin. Job 42.2, I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. And furthermore, his glorious work of redeeming a sin-scarred past is on display. How marvelous it is that God uses the consequences of their sin in running in defeat from Ae at the first battle, for his remarkable strategy, the second time, this is the way God works throughout the Bible. Think of Moses, whose heart ah oh, excuse me, think of Pharaoh, whose heart, so defiant towards God, provided the perfect backdrop for God's mighty works to be displayed, and perhaps most powerfully of all at the cross. Satan had turned the crowd and the officials all against Christ to convict an innocent man. This sin of injustice did not thwart God's plan. His plan was bigger and gloriously overcame the failings of men with his victorious work of salvation. God works this way in our lives, too. You may feel that there is some sin that, although forgiven, has left you unusable. That's not true. God redeems our sin-scarred past and can even use it as part of his glorious plan. This is yet another way that we know the sweet taste of defeat. He makes the bitterness of our sinful past into something sweet again as he displays his marvelous work of redemption. At the conclusion of the battle, the king of Ai, cursed for his defiance against God, is hung on a tree for his sins. According to the law given given to Moses, they take the king down at the end of the day, and he's buried beneath a heap of stones. In this, we are reminded again of the terrible cost of sin and how blessed we are to have someone else take our sin upon themselves and hang on a tree bearing the curse that we rightly deserve. Jesus, our Savior. This is the ultimate making sweet of our former defeat in sin, as Jesus made the price of our sins into the declaration of our worth when he ransomed us with his very blood. Next, the dramatic change in scene and halt from military action feels a bit like deja vu. Didn't God have Israel pause in their conquest of the land just a few weeks earlier in order to purify themselves and renew their covenant with God through the signs of circumcision and Passover? And now again, there is a time of spiritual renewal. Actually, this is a continuation of living in obedience, Since Moses had instructed them to stand in this very valley, a sort of natural amphitheater, and there they were to build an altar of uncut stone with a law written very plainly on them. His instructions go on, and Joshua follows them all to the T. The altar that is built is the fourth sermon in stones that we have seen in these three chapters. And as with the others, it speaks of the necessity of blood to appease God's wrath over sin. On this altar we are told burnt offerings were made. The blood of the animals was atonement or covering for sin, and the meat was consumed entirely by the flames, symbolizing the complete dedication of the one on whose behalf the animal died. Also, fellowship offerings were offered up. These are also called peace offerings. And again, the sacrificial animal's blood was shed, but some of the meat was set aside as a meal. This symbolized Restored fellowship with God as one sitting down over a meal with an old friend. The peace offerings also included thank offerings, which were the expression of praise to God for his goodness. How appropriate, after all Israel had just experienced, God's power and provision and victory, his holiness and wrath, his insistence on their obedience, and the blessing associated with that obedience— that they should overflow with praise. The celebration continued with a record of the law for all to see, written by Joshua on monuments of stone. And then, with half the tribes on one hill calling out God's covenant blessings, and the other half on the opposite hill calling out covenant curses, how their hearts must have been overwhelmed. As one commentator puts it, as the words of Joshua's reading cascade like a waterfall in the people below, they drenched them with the power of God to bless, but they must have likewise felt an appropriate fear of their holy God. Two things stand out about this scene. The word all is repeated. All the people were gathered, all heard. It was for all to see, and all the blessings and curses were read. This is in contrast to the all for the previous chapters in which all the inhabitants aside from Rahab and her family were killed. And really, this points to an aspect of God's holiness. Track with me. God is Lord of all everything belongs to him. It is his prerogative to give some things to set some things aside for destruction and it is his prerogative to set some things aside for his holy purposes. The claim of ownership is the same. The demand for complete dedication is the same. How humbling it is that we should be some of those set aside to receive his grace, undeserved as it most certainly is. The other theme is that of the centrality of the word. The covenant was known and confirmed by God's word, and we have already looked at how it's vital to know God's word in order to know God's commands. In order to carry out God's commands, we need to rely on his promises, which are also found in the word. And thus, covenant renewal, or spiritual renewal, is an outflow of returning to the Word. Throughout this chapter, we have seen the joy we have from the great work of God. From His marvelous work of redeeming our past, to His once and for all work of redemption at the cross, we have reason to rejoice in Christ despite our sin. Sin is not the end of the story. Jesus is. Our third truth is God can use even our defeat in sin for his glory as part of his sovereign plan. What does knowing God can change sin and brokenness into something beautiful, change in the outlook of your life? How will it change the way you pray? How will it change the way you respond to seemingly unanswered prayers? Satan likes to hold us back through doubt and fear. Don't let him. Did you know... That approximately 47% of people who die in car accidents weren't wearing seatbelts? And each year, 15,000 lives are saved by seatbelts? If only Ivan could have submitted. His willful defiance cost him his very life. May we not be so foolish. Our plans, our wisdom, our will cannot save us in a head-on collision with the judgment of a holy God. The evidence is in. We need to know the sweet taste of defeat. Let's pray. Dearest Heavenly Father, we praise you, the Holy One, But we are a sinful people. We see, we covet, and we take. We think it's just about us, but fail to see the damage it brings to all around us. Like Achan, we deserve death, but you hung on the tree that was meant for us, cursed. You quenched the Father's wrath. You opened the door of hope so that we could return to God. And for this, we thank you. Please help us to live now in subi- submission to you. Help us to see your discipline for our sin as love from a Father. And we pray that you would redeem even our sins scarred past. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.